This episode is sponsored by Podcorn. Podcorn is an amazing place for podcasts of all sizes to find sponsorships. That's absolutely right. You can find every sort of sponsor on Podcorn, from other podcasts to major brands, even small businesses looking to get their name out there. Just like we did, and we can tell you how to do it. All it takes is surfing through the sponsorships to find the right ones for you. Once you find some, send your proposal over and wait for the You're Hired email. There are opportunities waiting for you right now. Looking for podcasts just like yours to sponsor with host-read ads, topical discussions, or other creative integrations. So click the link in our show notes to sign up for Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities today. This episode is brought to you by the Smoking With Podcast. On the Smoking With Podcast, hosts Josh and Garrett have fun, freewheeling conversations, talking to each other and chatting with guests. They talk about the latest cannabis news, developments in the industry, and even try out samples and review them on air so you get their in-the-moment opinions about the newest offerings in the marijuana world. The Smoking With Podcast manages to be the best of two worlds. It's a couple of friends having fun, but it's also two guys with experience in the cannabis industry. They may insist they're not experts, but they definitely know their shit. I see what you did there. (laughs) (laughs) And they're starting to do giveaways, too, which is super exciting. So if there's a perfect time to start listening, it is now. Do you think they have, like, a giveaway for, like, a true crime bong? That They should. (laughs) what, What even is that? Check out the Smoking With Podcast wherever you get podcasts. You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. old-timey crimey i'm christy i need to be drunk and i'm amber working on it (laughs) and we are here with your weekly heaping helping of historical true crime but real quick before we get to that just want to remind you that the patreon is there waiting for you to come and at the five dollar level you can join and listen to all of our back catalog of over 60 uh, mini kind of bonus episodes, as well as our monthly extra extras where we go uh, do a full length episode and we go a little, go a little wild with that. Uh, This month was kind of a funny story because there was a slight miscommunication in that since we've done a few on decades that weren't uh, prior to the 1950s, as is our our standard for this show, um, Scott and Amber asked me, you know, are, are we free to do any decade? And I just assumed that they meant any decade before 1950. And I said, yeah. So Amber starts up with a, one that's in the, the 1970s. And then Scott starts up with one that's in the, the 2000s. And I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> Much like a lot of the criminals, we got away with it on a technicality. <laughs> they did. And here I am with my little 1940s murder. And I could have been one of the cool modern crowd for once. Oh, well. 
So yes, the Patreon is patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Come check out our old tiny crimeys and our extra extras. Give it a try. See if you like it. I really think you will. We've got some excellent stuff over there. Some some of that stuff, I, I, like every week when we record those, I'm ever so slightly disappointed that we don't release it to a wider audience, you know. But, you know, gotta keep those newspaper archives going, so... And that, that hosting bill is coming to do soon. So all that fun stuff. This week, we are going to talk about a man. A man. A Just man. a man? What is a man but a little pile of secrets? But how about you? This man is a pile of secrets, I'm this, telling you. Like three people that are going to get that. But they're going to go, yeah. What is a man <laughs> but a miserable little pile of secrets? Fuck him. We are going to talk about Roland Molyneux. So, but before we get into Roland, we need to talk about Kate J. Adams. In December 1898, she was a 52-year-old wealthy widow. She had previously been a dressmaker in Hartford, Connecticut. She lived on West 86th Street in New York City in the Upper West Side. Her family had... The whole third floor of an apartment building, the Hartford Current said the rooms are luxuriously furnished and show evidence of refinement and culture. And she lived with her daughter, Florence, and Florence's husband, Edward Rogers. He sold insurance. And then also Kate's cousin, Harry Cornish, boarded with the family. And that was a fairly recent development. On December 27th, Kate and her daughter Florence, they go on a little outing to the theater that evening. They have some dinner, and Kate had too much wine. We've all been there. I try. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to get there now. Sometimes we are actively having too much wine. The next morning, the 28th, Kate woke up with a terrible headache, which, again, we've all been there. And her daughter was like, why don't you take some Broma Seltzer? Now, let's talk about Broma Seltzer. It's sort of an effervescent kind of pain reliever. Now, the original version had sodium bromide in it, which is how it got its name. And bromide is a tranquilizer. Sodium bromide had actually been used as an anticonvulsant and sedatives in various medicines in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And people really, um, among many other applications, they used it for hangovers. Another thing you should know about sodium bromide is it was also used along with chlorine to disinfect swimming pools. Bromo seltzer sounds like something that would have like an oompa theme song. Like back in the (laughs) third, oompa, 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 broma seltzer. Yes, it does. Actually, you're right. So, but yeah, if it's it's also used along with chlorine, it, it was just too toxic. It had a low toxicity, but a, a long half-life. And so in 1975, the government banned sodium bromide. Another lovely ingredient in the original Broma Seltzer was acetanilide. Maybe I pronounced that right. I don't know. But that is also toxic and was eventually replaced in the formulation with acetaminophen, which we know as Tylenol. But acetanilide. I'm just making shit up. I don't fucking know either. Acetanilide. I have no idea. It sounded right, didn't it? 
It did sound right. Acidophilus. <laughs> but, oh my, the first time my mom said something about acidophilus, I thought she was pulling my leg. <laughs> there used to be, uh, I remember even as a kid looking at, what the fuck? There used to be like this milk substitute that was called sweet acidophilus. And I was like, what the fuck is that? You could have yeah, named like, it anything else. I was like, I, that, that sounds like a, a Greek man. Angel tit <laughs> juice. Go ahead. Name it that. It's better than sweet acidophilus. That is terrible, yes. But I, I like the Greek man because it's like, hi, nice to meet you. My name is acidophilus. So. <laughs> acidophilus spanakopita. <laughs> but this was just like, Broma Seltzer was just like the Tylenol of its day, except way more toxic. And it just so happened that Harry Cornish, that, that man boarding with them who was also a cousin, had recently brought some Broma Seltzer home. Now, he hadn't bought it from a store. He'd received it actually along with an anonymous gift three days before. Uh, it was in a sterling silver medicine bottle holder stamped with the Tiffany logo and in a Tiffany box. Had been, and it was labeled Broma Seltzer and it had been mailed to him at work. Now, the current, uh, the Hartford Current states on the flat surface, the address was written in a feminine hand, disguised to cause the impression that the writing was done by a man. <laughs> so Kate Adams takes the Broma Seltzer. Some accounts say that she takes it laughingly, like they're just playing around. And it smells like almonds and doesn't do the usual effervescent thing. But Cornish tries a bit and says, eh, it just tastes like medicine to me. Well, I actually, I have a little bit of this story. Um, she actually couldn't open the bottle. So she had to get Cornish to come and open the bottle because some had dried around the lip. And it actually opened with a almost ominous crack. <laughs> yeah, I think it took him a good few minutes to get that bottle open. Yeah, and he, he tried a bit too. And in just a few minutes, Kate is feeling incredible pain. She's having convulsions. She's vomiting. She's writhing on the floor, gasping for breath, blue in the face. And they're like, oh, crap, she's been poisoned. So they call uh, Dr. E.F. Hitchcock. And he's like, yeah, this this looks like it could be cyanide of potassium poisoning. So he gives her some nitroglyceride to try to counteract it. Cornish is also vomiting. And Dr. Hitchcock is like, well, we should, we should find out for sure, for, for science, whether this for is poison. science. This guy's a winner. He is, yes. So he takes a little bit of the supposed Broma Seltzer, and he starts to feel sick. So they're like, yep, yep, this is poison. This is and science. <laughs> he, he sends Cornish out to get another doctor partially because he thought that Cornish might benefit from a little bit of fresh air, but also because Dr. Hitchcock was like, I might not be able to do any doctoring pretty soon here. I, I might actually die. We're going to science the shit out of this. This I burst out laughing in my office when I read that he also took some, <laughs> some of the Broma seltzer. That I'm sure this is fine. Glug, glug. Like even <laughs> yeah. the fucking people in the, in the bell witch story at least had the common sense to give it to an animal. Yeah. It absolutely broke me. I, I don't, I don't approve of giving untested medicine to cats far from it. But like if somebody said, test this on a stray cat or test this on yourself. I'm sorry, Felix is getting some medicine. 
You know what, though? Like, Dr. Hitchcock actually made me very happy, though, because when the other doctor arrived, Hitchcock was self-medicating with whiskey. Yeah! Because in his words, as a fucking doctor, he was not aware of any poison for which whiskey was not an effective antidote. (laughs) I do love this man. It's not on the Discovery Channel. What? I'm a doctor. Whiskey helps everything. <laughs> I, I've yet to see him be proved wrong, though. Oh, your your carotid artery is uh, cut open. Eh, have some whiskey. Looks That'll like uh, right looks like you got a little cirrhosis of the liver there. Eh, a little whiskey cure you right I'm up. Shocked that his name is not like O Hitchcock. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Hitchcock. Uh, looks like you're bleeding rectally. Uh, let's shove some whiskey up there. Couldn't hurt. Oh, you have a hangover? Oh, wait, that actually is a thing. Hair of a dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That really is. It works. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, they do call in the other doctor. His name is e, Dr. E. Styles Potter. I don't know why anybody doesn't have a name. They just have initials. So he... His first name is dumb. So he, it's like Eugene or something. He's like, I don't want to go by that. I, I like Ebenezer. Actually, no, no, no. Let's let's change. I like Ephenezer. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> We we had some weird names in our tiny that would have been last week if you're listening to this. But so, yeah, Dr. Potter uh, is there to attend to Kate Adams and the two uh, other men. And he manages to get Hitchcock and, and Cornish back in, 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 you know, up and about. But Kate Adams died at 10 a.m. only about a half an hour after taking the supposed Broma Seltzer. So, okay, sorry, my my screen went black, and it was a scary moment for me. So. I love little moments like this. Everybody, everybody who does like podcasts always have these moments. Like just a few moments ago, oh shit, are we recording? <laughs> yeah, we're recording. I'm not going to say anything about it to anyone. Yeah, those little moments where your heart just stops for a second. And here's the thing. Here's the thing for our listeners who don't know. Like we take a little break between like the, the the short recording for our patrons, and if you're not doing our Patreon, you really should because there's a huge back catalog over there of some really amazing episodes that you can't hear anywhere else. But between between like the the recording for the patron episode and the main free episode, uh, I just took a little bit of time and edited that episode, and I just. I had a little mini heart attack here about three minutes ago. And what the fuck did I do with the episode? I uploaded it because you're done with it. <laughs> you dumbass. Oh, this gosh. is yeah. this is stress from beginning to end, people. No wonder I drink. You don't drink, though. I'm thinking about starting. My doctor said I, I need to drink more. <laughs> is that perhaps Dr. Hitchcock? Yeah. <laughs> you might want to see another medical professional. So. Or make him drink it first. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, sure. Fucking fuck belly up to the bar, you rowdy motherfucker. Let's get poisoned together. <laughs> All right. So let's talk now about Harry Cornish, who is the cousin who also had a little bit of the Broma Seltzer, and he had actually been the one to bring this home. He'd received the gift. Now, he was born in 1863. And he had worked as a businessman for some time. He was married with a daughter under 10. 
but he had his dalliances and was also known to hit up the brothels occasionally, as one does. He was a dedicated amateur athlete. He enjoyed bicycling, handball, boxing, bodybuilding, swimming. He loved all that stuff. I'm tired just thinking about it. I love how the papers described him. They described him as a tall, square-shouldered man, a splendid type of physical development. Nice. Mm, He actually... Splendidly physical. Hmm. (laughs) It'd be a shame if he was gay, wouldn't it? Oh, no. Right, you might as well be like, he had a nice, tight peach of an ass. I bet. (laughs) I saw him walking down the street, and I could see the outline of his magnificent pork sword through the front of his pants. (laughs) I know what what this show is not going to be titled Magnificent Pork Sword. Oh, we'll see. (laughs) It might just be O. Hitchcock. (laughs) I dare you. I dare you to call it Magnificent Pork Sword. It might be. Like I said, it might be. He, (laughs) Cornish had worked, he was really actually successful in this athletic career. He had worked as a director for the Boston and Chicago Athletic Clubs. He had even written a book for A.G. Spaulding. Yes, that Spaulding, you've seen that name on balls. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Uh, his his book series, All Around Athletics. And he had staged the games at the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. Cool. I mean, that's a, that's a yeah. big deal. So he's really well known. And I, I've got another bit from a paper about him. The Hartford Courant said, probably no man is better known to lovers of athletics than Cornish. And these athletic clubs that he worked at in Boston and Chicago, there's some in New York too. And they're, these are really booming at this period of time. Sports in general are a big deal. Even amateur sports, especially amateur sports, but as always, there are class divisions. So the upper class, the wealthy, they have their athletic clubs, and these had started around the 1860s. So this was a place where wealthy and elite people uh, and also amateur athletes could compete with each other. And of course, over time becomes a sort of social club. So there's lots of barriers to anyone who is beneath them joining the club. So There was the Knickerbocker Athletic Club in Manhattan had taken over a building from another famous athletic club that had gone bankrupt. They didn't just have athletic equipment. This place was full service. They had a pool, a fencing room, a sparring room, a squash court, two handball courts. And then if you weren't feeling particularly sporty that day or you just wanted to chit chat after you'd played some squash, you could go to the library or you could go to the dining hall, which had capacity for 200. You could hang out in the billiard parlor. You could go to the auditorium and maybe see a little show or a lecture. There was room for 1,500, so chances are you'll be able to find a seat. There was the reading room, the smoking room, the card room, and also living quarters for members because a lot of them had, in addition to their normal apartment or home, had a room there. So you could even live there. Up on the left wing of the hall, you'll find our five masturbatoriums. <laughs> Probably. So classes they offered, including gymnastics, indoor baseball, swimming, basketball, squash, handball, boxing, wrestling. They had water races and diving. They had shooting, bowling, pool, billiards. This was everything. And so when the new 
owner took over and they had the Knickerbocker Athletic Club. They were trying to get that established after this other one had gone under. They were looking for a big name. They were looking for somebody to hire and bring in and be the director who not only would be well-known, but also would be experienced. And who else but, you know, the man who lovers of athletics definitely know, Harry Seymour Cornish. He was 33 years old at the time that the Knickerbocker hired him in the beginning of 1896. And so he went to New York, and not long after that, his wife filed for divorce and also custody of their daughter, citing adultery, and moved back to Boston. Oh, the guy from the Knickerbocker was into bigger knockers, eh? (laughs) Nice. Thank you. The press really trumpeted this hire by the Knickerbocker. Here is uh, a quote. Harry S. Cornish, athletic director of the, they call it the new Manhattan Athletic Club, but it, it had been the Manhattan Athletic Club, and it didn't have the Knickerbocker title yet, is demonstrating to the satisfaction of his clientele that he is the right man in the right place, even at this early date. He has arranged a number of most interesting events, and for this month, the members look forward to an enjoyment, enjoyable appreciation of his efforts. And for his trouble, he got a salary of $1,800 a year. That's about $58,000 today. And he also got a room at the club, so he would have some place to stay. He also uh, got, I believe he got one meal a day. He was able to have like dinner in the, in the dining hall for free. So this new owner, in addition to wanting you know, the best athletic director he can find, he also wants to have some good amateur athletes as members of the club. You know? So the better amateur athletes you have, the more clientele you might be able to pull in. So among the people that he recruits is a popular but decidedly snobby upper-middle-class guy named Roland Molyneux. That bastard. That bastard. So let's talk about that bastard. He was one of three boys. He was born on August 12th, 1866. His father had been a Civil War general and raised uh, all three of his sons with a serious emphasis on physical fitness. And Roland physically was basically built for gymnastics. His specialty was the horizontal bar. And just growing up, he spent a lot of time at the gymnasium. So the three boys in order were Leslie, Edward, and Cecil. And no, I got that wrong. Leslie, Roland, and Cecil. Edward was the father. And (laughs) it's funny how siblings turn out differently because... The youngest and the eldest were just ridiculously goody-goody. Harold Schechter details how the eldest was, he was only late once to a meeting. And that was because just as he was leaving the apartment, the Star-Spangled Banner came on the radio. So he had to stand at attention until it ended. Lord. Lord, indeed. He literally kept a broom in his car just for sweeping debris off the roads. But Roland Molyneux was a little different from his brothers. The father uh, ran a paint company, C.T. Reynolds, and the sons were pretty much expected to join the family business. So in 1883... 
Roland was studying chemistry at the Brooklyn Polytechnical Institute, but his dad yanked him out and sent him west. And it was kind of a curious situation here. He went out and he ended up working on a ranch. And a lot of people were like, oh, maybe his, his dad just wants to get him a different experience or something. But it turned out he had had a little fling with an older married neighbor. Her name was Eleanor Kindberg, and I got some delight out of the fact that her maiden name was Robinson. This was Ms. Robinson. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, her husband subsequently divorced her, and this suit actually named Molyneux in the papers. So they needed to get him out of there. He was only, some sources say 15, but some sources say 17. He was in that range, so it definitely was like, we need to get him out. Now, here's the thing. And this I didn't even find in Harold Schechter's books, and his books are so wonderfully detailed. I found a newspaper article about this, and it was really, really weird. And I really want to get your thoughts on whether my read of this situation could be correct. So, Eleanor and her husband, before they got married, they moved in together. And she was desperately trying to get him to marry her. He kept putting it off, putting it off. And then finally things ramped up and he said, well, she's threatening suicide, so I'm going to I'm going to marry her. But he was he actually made her sign a paper at their wedding ceremony saying that he was just doing this out of charity and compassion. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So he pretty much seemed to, to leave her, but she was still coming after him for support. So one night. Roland Molyneux went to Eleanor Kinberg's place and he didn't leave until around 10 p.m. Not 15 minutes later, Eleanor's husband and several of his friends burst in and they were like, now we've got you. They verbally abused her. And when she tried to call for help, one of them came in dressed as a policeman and said if she said a word, he would carry her out into the street. And I imagine this was more of a threat because she might not have been fully clothed at the time. They forced her to sign a paper that she said was blank. And I really feel like this was a setup. That sounds like a setup. Yeah. I mean, you just happen to have a policeman's costume handy at the exact time that Roland Molyneux goes in and, and screws his wife at that. It, the timing is a little too close. And even if they were just watching her house every night, waiting for somebody to come, it's much more convenient to go recruit the neighbor boy and be like, you know, the, the, the trim athletic neighbor boy and be like, Hey, you think you can uh, seduce the neighbor lady? There's a couple of bucks for you in it, you know, but you know what? They might not have even had sex. That's possible too. Yeah. He could have just left her high and dry. Well, no, like, I, I'm saying, like, maybe he came over and was like, excuse me, Miss Neighbor, can I talk to you? I just need somebody to talk to. I don't have a mom. Well, you know what I mean? Like, so, because it doesn't say they had sex. You can't prove they had sex. No, you certainly can't. There is some implying that they had sex. And I, I do think they did just be, well, I Okay. I guess there's some things that come up later that make me wonder. I do think something physical happened. But 
regardless, he was named in the suit, so they had to get him out of town. But I, I do honestly think that this was a, a setup in some way, shape, or form, whether uh, sexual intercourse happened or not. Like this article really made me think, combined with the fact that they, you know, they they, they sent him out west, and it just it just all feels too convenient. <sighs> so. Then in 1884, his father went out at West and brought Roland Molyneux back. So when he's back in the city, he gets his high school equivalency. He got back into gymnastics. He became an amateur champion, which was a big deal at the time. I mean, it wasn't just like the guys down, you know, playing in the AAA baseball league or something. The amateur athletes were really looked up to and admired. And this was kind of his way of social climbing a little bit. And he did really become very snobby and elitist. He, you know, he's, he sees himself as, uh, you know, better than just about everyone. So at age 21, he goes to work at the family paint business as a chemist and continues his gymnastics. And he's actually... He's becoming known as Champion Molyneux. So it's right there in the title. This is where he also meets a girl at work. Her name is Mary Milando, uh, better known as Mamie around town. Her father had worked at the company and she did too, starting in 1887. She and Roland met and they started a relationship, which by our standards would not be particularly consensual since he was 21 and she was just barely 13. Ew. Yep. Yep. Practically Ew. a 12-year-old. And this 21-year-old is seducing her. So uh, that's gross. She looked 14. That's gross. <laughs> I swear, Your Honor, she told me she was 14. Uh, that you're, you're, not, you're not helping. So in 1893, after six years at the factory, he actually picks up another job at another paint factory. They put him up in style in an apartment above the factory. But you got to wonder what living with above a paint factory will do to you. All those fumes, all those chemicals and working with them during the day. Probably you have a pretty good buzz going 24 hours a day. It's fantastic, man. <laughs> I'm thinking about moving above a paint factory myself. Yeah. Uh, Mamie Milando also goes to work at this company. Roland gives her the job of foreman for the female workers or some of them. So she's 18 at the time. She's in charge of several female employees. And he also has her employed as his housekeeper. Mm -hmm. In the butt. <laughs> and so she's at his apartment a lot in the butt. Oh, you clean and my house so well. Ugh. <laughs> This was basically the start of his life, or the state of his life, at the point where he was recruited to join the Knickerbocker Athletic Club. So Molyneux was already there at the point when Cornish was hired. And this is an enmity that runs deep, especially on Molyneux's side. Molyneux hates Cornish. He, he has constant complaints about Cornish, his management, his actions, everything. And Molyneux says... You know, Cornish just constantly is abusing his power and making my life completely miserable. Molyneux also had a room at the athletic club in addition to his uh, paint factory get a buzz apartment. And nobody could really figure out why this hatred existed. They were, they were very different people, yes, aside from they did have the mutual interest in athletics. 
But later, some people would theorize that maybe Molyneux was suppressing his uh, homoerotic attraction to Cornish. But regardless of what the reason was, there was just, in a very short time, a powerful animosity between the two. And the attitude toward Molyneux is like, yeah, he's a good gymnast, but even for us as he. We're the wealthy and elite, and we still think that guy's a snob. And he's just really kind of a dick. But regardless, he gets himself a, a spot as officer on a few club committees. So he's able to schmooze, it would seem. Now, it does seem that Cornish knew some stuff. So he had a little bit uh, of, of pull and a few rumors he could spread. Because in April 1897... He was the one who answered the phone when the cops called because they'd picked someone up at a brothel during a raid, and that person had given them Molyneux's contact info as somebody to come get them. That person was Mamie. Mamie was at a brothel? Mamie was at a brothel. As a customer or a client or a uh, customer or a uh, provider? Uh, It seems a provider. Ooh. Kinky. Well, when somebody seduces you at the age of uh, 13, um, that could kind of like mess with your sense of sexuality. And let's, let's not say seduces. No, that, that's, that's when Molest. somebody sexually molests you at the age of 13. Yeah, let's go ahead and say that. That could probably sort of mess with your idea of sexuality. And so that might have been part of what drove her to sex work. Because she did have a job. You know, it wasn't it wasn't out of any sort of financial necessity. Maybe she just enjoyed sex. That's, that's fine. And she was like, Hey, if I can get paid for it, even if it's illegal, then 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 great. But if it was because she, she had a messed up view of, of sexuality, God, I feel like I'm not saying that sex workers have a messed up view of sexuality. I'm just saying that this could happen in this particular case. I just want to establish that. I feel like I'm like treading in scary waters here. <laughs> Help. I'm drowning. Gargle, gargle. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Christy is just trying to please everybody. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Please everybody while we're talking about sex work? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> okay. So regardless of why she was there, uh, Cornish started telling people that uh, Molyneux basically owned a brothel, which was not really true, but he, you know, he, He's had this guy up his ass about everything for forever. <laughs> and getting but, about 200 an hour to have be up his ass. Maybe maybe not the, the kind of up his ass that Molyneux wanted, but <laughs> if that, that is might the have case. been the problem. Yeah, there it yeah. is. So one of Molyneux's big complaints came when he tried to order new horizontal bars for the gym. Cornish supposedly changed the order so that instead of buying them from Molyneux's preferred provider, they would become from A.G. Spaulding, who Cornish was friends with. That really sent Molyneux on a tear. He wanted Harry Cornish punished or even kicked out entirely and evicted from his room. Management does bow to the pressure somewhat. They demote Cornish uh, quite a bit that all jobs are taken from him except for athletic training. And he is kicked out of his room by October of 1897 and has to get himself an apartment. And then he will eventually move in with his cousin, Kate Adams and, and board there. So that in 1897 
is kind of the status of things. Cornish and Molyneux are at odds. Molyneux is, is looking to get rid of Mamie Milando because she is not making him look good. And his, his public image is, is worth so much to him. And pretty soon he'll have another motivation to ditch Mamie. And that motivation is named Blanche. Blanche Devereaux. <laughs> well, very close. It's Chesabrew. Oh. But oh. it looks like Cheeseboro. So I yeah, definitely. Yeah, I know. I keep saying Cheeseboro. Uh, it, it may have been Blanche, but I was thinking about Sophia. Because I think <laughs> Sophia may have been the most erotic woman on television. <laughs> I'd fuck oh, Blanche, yeah. but I'd be thinking about Sophia. So, <laughs> Blanche was born in 1874. She was the daughter of a man who really was in love with get-rich-quick schemes. He never met one that he didn't like. He did have a few patents and some mild success. Now, Blanche, uh, when she was a child, she had had a, you know, a playmate throw a rock at her head, and she actually lost an eye. So she had a glass eye. Oh, she was able to give the old whistling blowjob. Oh, God. Oh, please never say that ever again. I'm covering my eye, literally. Oh, I don't know why I'm using my left hand to cover my right eye, but that's what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, she she was kind of sensitive about this. She would, she would make sure any photographs or portraits were taken from what she felt was her good side. She was an aspiring opera singer. She had studied with some... <laughs> I'm sorry. I just got this picture of her hitting a high C and her eyes shattering in her head. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, God. <laughs> That's terrible. That's <laughs> <also> funny. <laughs> so, she, she had... She, me, <laughs> she had studied with some prominent names and sang for some famous ones. She even sang at a private party atop Madison Square Garden, which was attended by its architect, none other than Stanford White itself, who would be later murdered in that same spot. And you can listen to that in episode 13, which it's a, I think that was a banger of an episode. He, she was working as a contralto soloist at Brooklyn Heights Church for $10 a week, which is $317 today. What she was really looking for, what she really wanted was a patron who might sponsor her on a trip to Europe where she could study. That was her big, big dream and her goal. She actually was really close at one point in time. There was one wealthy woman who had said, yeah, I'll, I'll take you to Europe after this trip. You know, I'm going to head over there now. And then on my next trip, I'll take you over. And that woman actually uh, died in uh, a shipwreck. So, Whoopsie. Whoopsie. Now, Blanche's parents had died and she was living in a tiny apartment, but both of her sisters had married up. So that gave her some access to one level of what we call society, which is how Blanche uh, one day in August 1897 met Roland Molyneux. So paths colliding. And in her eventual uh, manuscript of her memoir, here is a little bit about this particular meeting. 
One noticed that he was not very tall, but his body was slender, muscular, and beautifully proportioned. He carried himself very erect and gave a nonchalant air of self-possession, poise, and breeding. He had the most charming manners, greeting us with a quiet, infectious smile. Something flashed between us. On that day, how could I have guessed that fate had already begun to spin her web? So that was she. She has a style in her writing and we'll just leave it at that. (laughs) We'll just leave it there. So they spent the day on the yacht drinking champagne and talking just the two of them. And they kind of found a little corner where they could sit and they both had a love of music. So that was a big bonding point for them. And then at this point, Accounts of how the evening played out after this day of drinking champagne on a yacht diverge a little bit between Blanche's story and some of the other people present their stories. Because Blanche was there with her sister, by the way, her married sister. So this is really, it's curious. So she, okay, she says that she, her sister and some others left the boat at sunset and that was it. But there were others who were on board who said that, and I'm going to quote directly from from Schechter, Harold Schechter's book that is in the sources and in the show notes. At the end of that intoxicating champagne-soaked day, the men and women aboard Morgan's yacht, Blanche and Ishia, which is her sister, included, paired off, and a mock marriage ceremony was held for each couple. Then each set of make-believe newlyweds retired to his stateroom, intending to indulge in a very real consummation of their union. This does become a bit of a question later, but it seems like one way or the other, when she returned home, she was still, as she put it, innocent. And... It's still entirely possible that this whole mock marriage ceremony and going off to cabins might have still resulted in her being innocent. We'll just put it that way for now and we'll get there. We're going to, we're going to talk some shit about Molyneux. So (laughs) Molyneux breaks up with Mamie Milando and he starts spending tons of time with Blanche. They're going out on the town all the time. He's buying her nice little presents, always from Tiffany's love. He has an account there. And so he gives her an opal brooch, a diamond butterfly pin, and then a diamond ring. Now, this ring was engraved with the Hebrew word mitzpah, which translates as watchtower. And it was intended to mean, you know, sort of this, this, may God watch over you when you are apart. Now, again, accounts diverge as to what this ring meant because he saw it as an engagement ring and she very much didn't. She's like, I think it's a friendship ring. And if you keep bringing up marriage, I'm going to play coy and make light of it every single time. Cause she really, I think she was feeling like, yeah, it could be a good thing, but maybe there's something better out there. And she also wasn't quite feeling the attraction there. Now they, he was spending whole nights in her room But it didn't seem like they were really having sex, or if they were, it wasn't the sex that she wanted. She said in her memoirs that she was looking for a kind of brutality, which is part of a great tenderness in the lovemaking of some men. And it is absolutely overwhelming. And Roland didn't have it. She did like it in the butt. (laughs) She at least liked it a little bit rough, I think. 
So who, who doesn't? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> now, this was a whirlwind courtship slash relationship, whatever you want to call it, too. They met that August day on the yacht, and she already had the ring by November. So just a couple of months have passed. And at this point, not long after he gave her the ring, he introduces her to his friend, Henry Crossman Barnett. Barnett is another member of the Knickerbocker. He also has an apartment there. And so they meet one night at the opera and Blanche is like, this guy, this guy has it. He had the brutality, which is just part of a great tenderness in the lovemaking of some men that she wanted. Now, the three of them started hanging out. And Molyneux is, he's keen to this. He's like, I think I have a little bit of a rival here and I don't like it. So he's making his claim on Blanche very clear. And she resents that a bit because she's like, I never really made a commitment to you. You don't have any hold on me. And she really wanted to see, you know, what Barnett had to offer. So pork sword department in the pork sword department. Did he, in fact, have a magnificent pork sword? She wanted to know. Inquiring minds. (laughs) (laughs) So when Molyneux makes a full proposal on Thanksgiving, she says, no, but maybe later. So she's still keeping that hope alive in him. Meanwhile, there's another dust up over at the Knickerbocker Club. And this is pretty soon after Molyneux had gotten Cornish demoted. And Molyneux, once again, he's trying to get Cornish fired entirely. But the board is like, will you please chill? Dude, what is your problem? Go and get some if you need it. So, uh, but he can't. So on December 20th, Molyneux responds by saying, well, it's him or me. And when you do that, people got to choose. So they didn't choose him. And he resigned. On his way out, he ran into Cornish. And they had this exchange. Cornish said, you son of a bitch. You thought you'd get me out, but I got you out instead. And Molyneux only said with a little smile, you win. But he is stewing a lot over that, over the Blanche Barnett issue, and that one is about to escalate, too. In late January, Molyneux escorts Blanche to a party, but Barnett is there, and very quickly, Barnett persuades her to just slip out of the party with him, and he takes her to a friend's apartment. That friend is out of town. Everybody's in Europe, you know. It's just ridiculous. And it looks kind of to Blanche's eyes like Barnett had a plan for the evening. He had prepped prepped the place a little bit. He had the fireplace ready to light. He had a chaise lounge pulled up in front of it. He makes some highballs. And they do it. <laughs> <laughs> she says... The brutality of it was an ecstasy and said that she had bruises when they were done. And then they just head back to the party like nothing happened. So. Every time I farted for a week, it sounded like someone whistling against a Coke bottle. Oh, dear. So the next time they see each other, about a week has passed and it's at a cafe. Barnett is actually pretty cold with her. And he's like, look, you know, Molyneux told me about what happened on the not- on the yacht. And she's like, that didn't, no, that didn't happen. She's trying to be discreet, but she's like, what Molyneux says happened didn't happen. 
And he's like, well, Molyneux said stay away from his girl. But they pretty quickly get past the coldness and the, then then it's rabbit time. It's just just doing it, doing it, doing it. The very next day, she fights with Molyneux. She gives him the ring back and they end things. And on his way out, he says, tell Barnett the coast is clear. He wins. And What's a little, the little win thing. It's uh yeah, it's when people win against uh, Molyneux, uh, I don't think they win for long, is what we're gonna see. Or at least if he had anything to say about it. So Blanche and Barnett keep things up. And for the next six months or so, they really don't see Molyneux much. Uh, they when they do run into him, it, it's like right outside her apartment, it's pretty awkward. And a few days later, Molyneux went and he got himself a private P.O. box under the name Mr. H.C. Barnett. And he uses this box to get books and pamphlets and cures for, okay, so one ad he responded to says, a method that overcomes every evil condition of the sexual system gives to the weakest organs and parts their natural vigor and tone and to those shrunken and stunted their normal and proper size. Oh, my God. Whoa. Yeah. So maybe that magnificent pork sword uh, actually wasn't quite magnificent. And so there was that. Um, Let me tell you about this. My penis is like a hot water bottle filled with sausage. It is magnificent. And she said after I was done with her, it was like being punched in the vagina by Mike Tyson wearing an oven mitt. <laughs> so I actually, I, I might have something to, to add to this groin issue. So um, my husband is a gymnast and has been for a very, very long time. And I can tell you that there have been some injuries that can cause issues. So at one point he was injured to the, and this is before we met. Cause obviously I wouldn't have stayed with him. Um, he could get an <laughs> erection for like two years. And when he did, it wouldn't stay up because he had like come down and smashed his bits. Oh, oh, oh dear. Oh. It took probably a good two years to heal it. And the doctor was like, well, you really shouldn't masturbate or have sex. Like you need to avoid touching it or making it stand up for too long. Like, so sometimes gymnasts do get injuries like groin pulls and different things that, that maybe could cause problems down the line. That is certainly very possible. Um, could have also been the gonorrhea. Can we name oh. can we name yeah, this episode Marcus yeah. couldn't get an erection for two years? No, 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 no don't say that. <laughs> but you you just told us that, and people I are know, gonna I, damn hear it. It. Uh, it was before we met. It was like back when he was a teenager, probably when he wanted to to rub it the most. I would assume. Would, um, would, should we edit that out? Would he be angry? <laughs> I don't know. Does he listen to the show? No. Fuck it. It stays oh, in. We're in the clear. So, <laughs> dear God. So, if you're listening to the show right now, don't tell Marcus. I mean, it is good personal experience that, that is very similar. And yeah, he, uh, he Molyneux was on the horizontal bars. It's, it could have been very well a combination as well. See, it could have been an injury plus the gonorrhea. Most of my performance issues come from depression. 
That's that's the gods on the truth. As long as we're being as long as we're being honest here, I want Marcus to know. Yeah, you know what? You've had some company here because like I fight depression very very often, and most of my performance issues, honestly, depression. Well, not to make you feel bad, but he he does not suffer from performance issues um, now. So <laughs> good save, Amber. <laughs> and if you want to. Amber, uh, we can cut this out, but if you want to have a possibility of something Scott could edit in so that it could still be seamless between y your mention of the injuries and uh, my, my uh, oh, but maybe gonorrhea also, you could just say something like, you know, my husband is a gymnast and I know that sometimes they can have injuries that can cause them not to be able to perform. I, I, I don't think it matters. Like, I don't, I, I don't think he'd care if I shared that. Cause it was, it was like 20 years ago. You know what I mean? Like he's obviously recovered as we have small mini us's running around the house. So, um, yeah, everything is I was just well, assuming I, you found those fuckers along the side of the street. Well, you know what? Like, <laughs> honestly, my youngest, I was banking on him being sterile and, um, that was not the case. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh gosh. Okay. I was just trying to give you an out in case you wanted it, but, um, okay. So I love this. Yeah. I don't have to edit anything. This all stays in. <laughs> Sometimes I edit extra Scott. I know. Uh, so, um, this ad about, you know, every evil condition of the sexual system, Molyneux responds to it in Barnett's name. And he gets in re in reply, a diagnosis questionnaire to fill out. And on the question about, you know, sexually transmitted infections, gonorrhea, he checks yes. And yeah, he also... No, I'm, I'm thinking he bought that more for the gonorrhea then. Like, I, I didn't know that beforehand. But yeah, that was probably more his issue. <laughs> well, one way or the other, he said that his erections were, quote, very feeble. And that <laughs> dur dur during connection, which would be, of course, intercourse, his ejaculations were very long delayed. He does mess up and on one of the order forms, because he got all kinds of like drugs and, and pamphlets and handbooks and all this in, in this uh, private letterbox. One of these order forms, he did sign his actual name. Oopsie. Okay. Okay. So he had very feeble erections, mm -hmm. which is amazing. Um, yeah. And uh, it took him a long time to get released because he was probably having sex with women who he was not attracted to. That was probably the issue. <laughs> yeah, that that and the gonorrhea combined are definitely going to make it so that you're going to have very feeble or feeble erections. Feeble erections. Feeble erections. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A very bad Disney cartoon that did not become very popular. <laughs> Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, feeble erection. Oh. Didn't work out I well. I don't know why. I I just love that so much. It's the delayed. It's the delayed completion that really got me because I just pictured like five hours later, this guy shoots out like like five tadpoles. <laughs> <laughs> now, in August 1898, the actual Barnett gets a package in the mail. It's a little box filled with capsules that have white powder in them. And it's called Calthos and is a treatment for impotence. Imp impotence. Now, he doesn't know 
Yeah, I just picture him like this. getting getting these in the mail and going, "Oh, hello!" And he goes and puts on a, like a suit and tie. Why did you? Why did you? Why did you do that? Well, if I'm going to be impotent, I'm going to look impotent. <laughs> so yeah, he just kind of like is like, "All right, okay." And in then the next month, September, Blanche goes to lunch at the Waldorf Astoria with Molyneux. And by the end of that lunch, she had told Molyneux that she would marry him. Not really. This woman it can be very detailed in her other recolle- recollections. But in this one, she's she's pretty fuzzy and doesn't really give us any idea of what exactly it was that pushed her to do this. Now, the speculation is basically that, well, he was her big chance to go to Europe. I mean, he actually had gone to Europe at one point while they were apart. And so this, you know, she, she's kind of like, well, you know, Barnett doesn't really have the the means to support her in that way and maybe doesn't even want to get married. So this might be it for her as far as that particular dream and, and pursuing her singing career with studying over there. So they're engaged by the end of this lunch and... Still, she can't stop thinking about Barnett. He had heard about the engagement. And then when he finally saw her, it was a very stormy conversation. And she's like, well, maybe we can still be friends. And he's like, no, this has to be goodbye. The following month, uh, October 28th, Barnett wakes up one morning. He had had a little bit too much to eat and drink the night before. And so he takes... Some of Kutnow's improved effervescent powder, which he'd gotten a free sample of in the mail two months before. This is just another version of Broma Seltzer, and you could get free samples. You had to request them. He hadn't done that, so he wasn't sure why he had gotten it. But nevertheless, there it was, and so he took it. And he very quickly became very ill with stomach cramps, vomiting, diarrhea, and chills. Doctor is called brings him some remedies and he, he does come back around but he still feels like shit and one big thing is his his tongue and throat hurt so bad he can't eat another doctor comes in and diagnoses him with diphtheria even though they took cultures and sent them to the lab and the lab said no diphtheria that doctor was still like nope dip- i said diphtheria it's diphtheria the mouth discomfort continues, so the doctor's like, all right, fine, we'll send some of this Kutnow's improved effervescent powder to the chemist. And the temi- chemist tests it. First, he eats a little bit. God damn it. What is it with you people? Uh, I, Let me just put this in my mouth. I just want to see. Exactly. <laughs> They're like small children. They got to put everything in their mouth. And he finds it contains cyanide of mercury. But the thing is, this doesn't really ring any alarm bells because both mercury and cyanide were used medicinally at that time in tonics and all those kinds of things. And this is from Schechter, which (laughs) get prepared to hate everybody in the 18 and 1900s for how dumb they were. It was a time when formaldehyde was routinely prescribed for the common cold, arsenic for asthma, strychnine for headaches, morphine for diarrhea, and mercury for everything from anemia to yellow fever. A woman with morning sickness might be treated with a heaping spoonful of belladonna, 
a constipated man with a cup of turpentine oil, and a colicky baby with a chloroform-soaked rag placed over its nostrils. Nap time! <laughs> Gargling with cyanide of mercury was a recommended cure for sore throats. You know what, though? Like, I really feel like I would all the time be like, hey, doctor, I have diarrhea. Why don't you give me some of that morphine? <laughs> yeah. Can you, I'm having some trouble sleeping. Could I get that chloroform-soaked rag, please? <laughs> fucking hell. I, just, I regretted children almost immediately, but now that I use chloroform, I just keep my kid in a cardboard box underneath the desk. Yeah. Blanche hears about the illness and insists on sending Barnett chrysanthemums and a note that was... It managed to be very effusive, but also kind of walk that line without being too much like we used to be lovers. But it definitely wasn't the kind of note you send a friend. But meanwhile, Barnett's getting weaker and weaker, and he's diagnosed with heart failure, which is what is listed as the official cause when he dies on November 10th, 1898. Weakened heart caused by diphtheria. So Blanche attends the memorial service. And then one week after that, there's uh, another service of a, a different and uh, one that expects more joyous kind. There's a wedding. She marries Roland Molyneux on November 19th. We're coming up to that time around Christmas when Harry Cornish, remember way back, got that little bottle of Broma Seltzer with the Tiffany holder. The thing about this was, came around Christmas, that's a time when people eat a lot, they drink a lot. Everybody just kind of figured it was a gag gift to be like, hey, you know, be careful, don't eat too much, don't drink too much, or you might end up needing some of this. So just a, you know, a little, a little joke. And without a thought, he just took it home to the Adams household on December 27th. So it was there on December 28th when Kate Adams was hungover took the Broma Seltzer, and died. So, they, after her death, they call the police. Dr. Hitchcock says that Cornish should go uh, to the assistant district attorney, let him know what's up, and give his account of, of the whole morning and everything. And the, the ADA actually sends over three detectives to, to just to guard the apartment. Like, What? Must be so nice to have money. And right. I, I, Ariana and I were talking about this today. Like we were watching a movie based on a true story, and like these guys who just did like a three hundred and fifty million dollar deal were pissed that they underbid the next competitor by fifty two million. And we said, oh, we'll take the fifty two million. Right? Yeah, I'll take yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and even. If you wanted to get to their floor, because remember, they had the whole third floor, you needed to get leave from the assistant district attorney's office. Like, they are being taken care of. The coroner's physician goes to the apartment that evening, gathers some evidence. They, they get the bottle. They get the file holder, which is, you know, the little Tiffany engraved thing that held it. They get the wrapper, which had the address on it. Somebody, you know, had written to send it to Harry Cornish, and they do an autopsy. The bottle is revealed to contain, they say, cyanide of potassium, 
And then the funeral is held in Hartford, Connecticut. And Cornish, after he went to the ADA and told the story, he banished for a little while. Nope, didn't even attend the funeral, it doesn't seem. About a week later, the papers say that the police still have no idea who did it. But in that same article, it's, it's kind of funny. All right, so this article is like, oh, the police are clueless. They have no idea who did it. But this other newspaper said that it was probably Roland Molyneux, and they were so irresponsible, they shouldn't have done it. And then they proceed to make the next, like, three columns about Roland Molyneux and the slamming the other paper for doing this, but also, if Molyneux were innocent, just compounding the error. And so this particular article uh, did also point at the relationship between Blanche and Barnett. And it said that Molyneux and his dad, once they heard his name being mentioned by the original newspaper, went to the police and the police were like, Oh no, 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 no. We're certainly not looking at you. You're, you're fine. It's fine. And General Molyneux told how horribly upset they all were by these spurious rumors. The whole family was very, very aggravated. But he does admit that the fact that both he and his son are chemists is a little bit troublesome, one might say. Just a little bit. Maybe. A smidge of trouble. A smidge. The, <laughs> the New York Tribune gets to the heart of it before we even know the culprit. Uh, so nobody knows exactly who's done it, but in the, the next column over from this discussion of how Molyneux was not in, not definitely not involved, no matter what that other paper says, and we're going to talk for three columns about Molyneux. There's another article that says a murder of this kind is prompted by one of two passions, revenge or jealousy. They just got it backwards because the first murder that they're not even talking about yet was jealousy. The second one was revenge. Or maybe also suppressed homoerotic attraction. <laughs> the, but then, of course, this article say, also goes immediately on to a quote from the assistant district attorney who's like, well, if it was poison, it was a woman. <laughs> Every time. Every time. You guys do have, a, uh, do have a habit of using poison, though. We do, but that doesn't mean that it's automatic. If you, if you cling to, especially if you're in a position where you're investigating... If you cling to stereotypes like that, you're just going to get already from the start of an investigation tunnel vision. Because if you say, well, it's probably a woman, then you've eliminated half of the population that you will even look at. And it's entirely possible that your culprit could be in the 50% of the population that you just cut out. I will agree with that. I will so agree I, with that. Yeah, I think that holding those like... As long as you you say, okay, well, most of the time it's a woman, but men can poison too, absolutely, and, and don't rule anyone out on that basis, I think you're okay. But when they're putting in the paper like, well, it's got to be a woman, that's when it gets super problematic, especially when it's the ADA. Yeah, it's – I remember I remember a detective during the uh, – during the uh, the Beltway sniper shootings uh, saying, oh, yeah, that's – if this is a woman, I'll eat my badge. Well, he was right. He was right. But at the same time, he as a detective shouldn't have ruled that out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with you fully there. It's 
it's just, it's premature and preliminary. And I think you have to look at everybody. So as this will go on to prove, because by the end of February, they actually had decided, yeah, it's Molyneux and we have enough proof for it. He was arrested. He's charged with murder. He's tossed in the tombs prison. The murder charge is for the Adams death. But they are also at this point connecting him to the Barnett murder. They're just not charging him there. And it was the letterbox that connected him to the murder. So that private letterbox he got, they uh, compared the handwriting on the packages of uh, poison to his order forms for cures for male debility or atrophy. And there may have even been, so he had this first letterbox under the H.C. Barnett name. There may have been, it's a little unclear, another box under Harry Cornish's name at another location. So he's going around and putting his murder victims' names on these boxes in an attempt to get off scot-free, but he's just doing it very sloppily. Uh, uh, We do not use that word around here. (laughs) Uh, If I'm not careful, this podcast is going to be scot-free. You said it again. Yeah, but in context (laughs) of what you said. I'm trying. All right. All right. He'll get off free and clear. Thank you. You're very welcome. So he's, they also had multiple handwriting experts, which, yeah, handwriting analysis and comparison, it can get a little dicey as an actual forensic technique. But regardless, they still connect him. And also on packages sent to and from the letterboxes to to Molyneux as well. So he's, he's, he's connecting himself just by having these sent to him. And they also, uh, at the inquest, they, they discuss all of this, all the letterboxes and the handwriting comparisons. And it's basically every handwriting comparison, whether it's under H.C. Barnett's name, Molyneux's name, or Harry Cornish's name, it's always Molyneux's handwriting. But they also, in the closing remarks, managed to completely slam Blanche at the inquest. So she's, she has to go into hiding. Essentially. She is outcast and is basically a prisoner in the Molyneux family home, except for when she goes to visit her husband Molyneux over at the tombs jail. Now, one interesting thing that there's, there's never any closure on. It's just whispers that seem to have made it into just a few accounts He's awaiting trial, and at some point there are some murmurings about Mimi, Mary Malando. It's possible that he might have instigated a murder-for-hire plot on her. Not even sure whether that was completed or whether it was just something he was trying to do to get her off his back or whatever, but it seems... Like, at least that had been something that he had talked about with one or two people. But again, there's no closure on that. One thing that happens while he's in jail that him being charged with murder and that being a capital offense for which he could get the death penalty is that while he's there in jail waiting for his trial, America is like, oh, hey, bitches, you want equality? Okay, all right. We'll give you equality. We're going to put a woman to death in the electric chair. That was Martha Place. She was the very first woman to be put to death that way in March 1899. 
but you still can't have the vote. We, we can put you to death, state-sponsored execution, but you can't have any say in who represents you in government and makes the decisions about this happening. You know what? I think I liked it better when if a woman did something, then they would punish the husband. Of course. <laughs> yes, as we talked about in our interview. With, of course. With Brian and Lauren from Transatlantic History Ramblings. That was fascinating. I had no idea about that. <laughs> but I love it. <laughs> I guess, you know, there are there are positives and negatives to any situation. And the negative to that situation would be having absolutely no autonomy. But with no autonomy you also can kind of get no blame. So that's nice. Yeah, that's that's a positive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you don't want me to be responsible for anything, then I guess I won't be responsible for anything. So, yeah. You fuckers took the bite out of the apple, and now it's, oh, everything's not my fault. That bite out of the apple is just, ever since then, it's been that, downhill it's for been, us. It's been downhill for men ever since. <laughs> so, <laughs> And you get the hell out with her. <laughs> now the the Martha Place case is very very sad too. I'm, I'm not I'm not denying that this woman perhaps had execution coming. She was uh, very evil towards a young child. So there's that. But it, it's still it's it's kind of unfair, you know. To I, women were very much the the DC. <laughs> of the United States for a long time. So, and yeah, Molyneux would have been very aware of this development. And I can only imagine like sitting there in prison and, and hearing the news that America had executed its, you know, very first woman. And you're like, that does not bode well for me, a man with a penis that works sometimes a little bit, but is feeble. So finally, in November 1899, trial begins, and it goes until February of the new century, and New York had never had a trial as long as this at this point, and it had had very few other trials that were as expensive. This was a pricey one. Even though, early on, the DA's office said that they could do their part in just two days, and it would be the shortest trial on record. I love I how love wrong that. they are. Yeah, no, I know. I just love how wrong they were. They're so wrong about so many things. It's it's wonderful how wrong they are. <laughs> so uh, Blanche and Molyneux's parents attend the trial together. It does look like a touching reunion, but people behind the scenes know that this is all a show put on by his lawyers and his dad. They were like, hey, going to bring Bran Blanche and the family, you know, to the trial look happy and surprised. And so he does. And the defense is like, we, we, we got this. And the prosecution's like, and no. But Molyneux, as much as he was good acting on that first day, his ability to act does not continue throughout the trial. He has to cover a burst of laughter with a cough while they're reading the murder charge. <laughs> Exactly. Now, granted, we know that legalese in our day is kind of ridiculous. These long, tortured, twisting sentences with 18,000 clauses in them. 
And in that day, it was 10 times worse. So that could have been what he was laughing at, just how ridiculous it all sounded. But he's also laughing at the murder charge against him for murdering a woman. So, yeah. And uh, when he wasn't having inappropriate outbursts of laughter, he was uh, just playing a riveting game of tic-tac-toe against himself. Yeah, that looks innocent. Like, I'm so fucking bored sitting here for a murder charge. Yeah. Little hint. If you're on trial for murder, at least look like you give a shit. Yeah. My God. And so his counsel, of course, tries to point the finger at Cornish. And, you know, Cornish lived in that the household with... Kate, he was the one who had given her the bottle of Roma Seltzer. And they really tore Cornish's whole history, including like past infidelities, utterly apart in court. They were trying to really, really just character assassinate him as much as they could in an attempt to raise reasonable doubt in the minds of the jury. Uh, but it doesn't do the job. After seven and a half hours of deliberation on February 10th, 1900, the jury comes back with a verdict of guilty. I mean, now, we all saw it coming, right? Well, certainly, yes. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. yeah. Every once in a while, uh, a story will surprise me with a verdict I didn't expect. But generally especially once accounts have been written of them in newspapers and in books and everything, you get to a point where the those telling them, and we do this too, naturally, those telling them make sure to include the relevant bits of information that convince you that the person who is, is eventually found guilty actually did it, just like we're lawyers, just like we're prosecutors. And because... We are, in a sense, that there is an element of storytelling here. Yes, it's a true story, but there, it's called a true story for a reason. It's still a story. And so there is that element of storytelling here. And, yeah, I want you to believe what I believe, which is that he was guilty. <laughs> you know, of course I do. Um, but there wasn't much evidence that he wasn't. There wasn't really much evidence against Harry Cornish. You know, just because the guy had affairs doesn't mean that he was going and trying to murder his cousin for some reason. Yeah, you know, that sounds like something only somebody with a feeble penis would do. <laughs> exactly. This is a feeble penis kind of crime. And obviously Cornish has worked quite well. <laughs> it would seem so. But the thing is, is that as much as we all expected it, eh, Molyneux really didn't seem to expect it. Just before the jury returned, an account states... There was no sign of apprehension on the young man's face. His step was light and springy, and he smiled as if he had not a care in the world. And then they came and said he was guilty, and he uh, looked like he had a few cares. Like, a few. But the thing about this trial is, once again, we have people heavily invested in this. So there are crowds outside the courtroom. And so when they're taking him out of the building, the crowd is actually going... Three cheers for Molyneux! Three cheers for Molyneux! <laughs> like, he, he just got found guilty of murdering two people. Well, one person, but. So, 
There were also some opposing cheers in favor of Cornish, you know, three cheers for Cornish, but the Molyneux ones were louder, so. And Molyneux is sentenced to death by the electric chair. But it's not quite over for him. His name is about to be attached to a precedent in American jurisprudence. There are appeals, and in October 1901, his conviction is reversed. So the thing was, remember how I said he was charged with the Kate Adams murder. They didn't charge him for the Barnett murder, but they used their evidence from that to say he had done it, and that was like a prior bad act. So further proof that he did the Kate Barnett murder and also similar in, in nature and in specifics. So when the prosecution brought that up and just let the jury assume guilt, even though nothing had been proven or even charged for the Barnett murder, that was what undid the conviction. This was established and it's known as the Molyneux rule. Defendants can't be tried for a crime that's not listed in the indictment. You can't say that he must have committed the Adams murder because he definitely did the Barnett murder and not charge him and try him for the Barnett murder. And it does seem fair. I don't like that his conviction was reversed, but it does seem like a fair rule, you know? Yeah, no, and, and it is a fair rule because you can't you can't go using something that has never been tried or convicted as evidence of why you think he did this other murder. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean there's it's not fact. It's still innocent until proven guilty unless you tried him and he was convicted in the other murder. Yeah. It it does have its you know like different Details here or there that can can make it troubling at times, but in in most cases, it is is absolutely feels like that ju- just shouldn't be you know allowed. So he does get another trial, and in ni- November nineteen o two, he is acquitted. Do I have that right? Honestly, I feel like yes, I do have that right. Yeah, <laughs> he's acquitted. I still can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess, I guess without the Barnett murder, they didn't. It, it wasn't enough. Somehow, they didn't have enough evidence to beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, yeah. It's still. It's just very like I'm looking at my own words and I'm like, did I write that? Did I write the wrong word? Was I drunk again? This doesn't feel right. <laughs> yeah, it really doesn't. This feels completely wrong. So. Blanche, after that, uh, she finally divorces him. Uh, the uh, reasoning is mental cruelty. And uh, about a year later, her divorce goes through and she marries her divorced lawyer. Uh, way to live the cliche, Blanche. I love that. That made me so happy. <laughs> yeah. She went on to write the memoirs of her life, especially talking about her time with Molyneux and all of this, this scandal that she was you know, involved in. And she did live until the age of 80. Molyneux, meanwhile, got literary. And he became the first and only murder defendant to have a play produced on Broadway. It is called The Man Inside. Mm. 
there's literally a joke in Arrested Development where uh, David Cross plays Tobias Funke, who is pretty obviously suppressing some homoerotic attractions. And he writes a book called The Man Inside Me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's right there. <laughs> so, and it does end up on stage in 1913, but that same year, Molyneux experiences a severe mental health decline. And he ended up in a state hospital, which is where he died in 1917 of syphilitic infection. Good for him. <laughs> Feeble syphilitic infection. And that, that is what I have on Roland Molyneux. Do you guys have uh, anything to add there? Um, no, I, I don't believe so. Um, I, I, will, I do have a little fun fact. Okay. So uh, the Molyneux case is actually featured in Deborah Plume's The Poisoner's Handbook. Um, and and you also had uh, Harold Schechter, which we've named quite a few, few uh, times. So there are two books full of poisons dedicated <laughs> to Molyneux, which I thought was fun. <laughs> I, I, yeah. got, I got a little factoid here that's important to me personally. Because it involves my hero. Uh, the prosecuting New York district attorney in the Molyneux case, Asa Bird Gardner, was fired by the governor on the grounds of incompetence. That governor, Theodore Roosevelt. <laughs> I saw that and I didn't even write that down because I was like, Scott will have that. Scott will have that. <laughs> yeah, Scott will have know. that. I know you love your you love you some Teddy. <laughs> I love me some Teddy Roosevelt. The man was a badass. Oh, it seems I've been shot in the chest. Uh, Ninety minutes for this speech. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, if you enjoyed that, uh, go hop on our Patreon, which I talked about at the beginning. So I'm not going to go on with that. But we also, if you don't want to do the Patreon, if you just want to give us a couple bucks just once. That's fine, too. We'll still give you a nice shout-out on the show. You can do that on PayPal via our email address, oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. Don't forget about our merch. We have some really good stuff up there, and I'm coming up with some new ideas that I might develop over the next couple months. That is oldtimeycrimey.redbubble.com. Rate, review, subscribe. You all know all your favorite podcasts say it, and your, your least favorite ones, too. Uh, but... Uh, it does help, and like I always I, I like to say, don't just review us. Go and review a couple of your favorite podcasts. It, it really makes their day, and it also helps, you know, as far as uh, getting more word out there so you get more listeners, and more listeners is always a good thing. So, And uh, don't forget to check out Detectives by the Decade. It will be going on a little hiatus for a while soon, but there are some episodes there to listen to as well. And short story, short podcast where Chris Garcia and I uh, talk about short stories and we keep it brief and we're having a lot of fun over there. And also social media. You can come check out our social media to look at media related to the episodes that is on Facebook and Twitter. And that's my bullshit. So uh, what are we up to this week, guys? 
just looking uh, at the stock market crashing around me and seeing my money go goodbye. I've lost a thousand bucks in the stock market, but you don't lose it until you sell it. And I know it'll all come back. Somebody please hold me. <laughs> it'll get better, I swear. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I got nothing. I don't even know how to respond to that. <laughs> I feel like I had something. Um, I, I guess I really didn't. I'm going to be taking another bath, I think. I'm really feeling that strong urge to go sit in the sit in the tub for a little while and just watch something on the old Netflix or wherever I end up watching it, you know, um, and chilling out and putting, putting various facial things on my face. Um, so did Chrissy you know, just like say that? she's getting a facial? No, not that kind. Not that kind. Um, you did actually remind me. So there is something on my itinerary. I have to go to my dad's house and play tech support guru for the TV. So that is on my plate for tomorrow. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Just tell him to press the input button a couple of times. It'll come back. No, that's not what it is. He, uh. he can't get his, his computer to log into Hulu. Ah. Ah. So. I did want to try a little something where, you know me and my old-timey newspapers, and especially with the, the newspapers.com subscription. Thank you, Chris Garcia. Um, I, I'm finding more and more, and I find these little bits and pieces. I, I did want to kind of try and end on and see how this works. A little scrap of something, not even crime-related, but something I found. This was from the Chicago Daily Herald in 1946. Apparently, they had a column called Teen Tales that would be local teens you know what they're up to and so this was uh <laughs> this was the poisonality of the week and yes they spelled it poisonality jesus christ oh, oh just wait this week we'd like to introduce a new girl you've probably seen around the cove you know the one with the reddish scarf brown coat and the luscious blonde hair hey boys line forms to the right for harriet boobier Oh, and it finishes with a parenthetical. Mmm, and those legs. God damn it! What? I can't. Were they like auctioning off teenagers? What the hell? <laughs> it does sound a little human trafficky, doesn't it? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and going once, going twice, and to the man in the back in the long trench coat. $40 for Harriet Boobier. It sounds like not a lot, but it's 1946. That could buy you a car. We told her she was going to be a model. Now she's <laughs> a slave. Her beauty <laughs> will soon fade. Get it while it's hot. <laughs> and those legs. Uh, and those legs. Dear God. So... <laughs> with that we leave you listeners thank you for listening we appreciate it so much um, we will see you next week thanks for listening to our filthy words and magnificent pork swords bye humans bye. disgust me I swear to god <laughs> my sources this week are Harold Schechter's book The Devil's Gentleman Privilege Poison and the Trial that Ushered in the 20th Century the L.A. Herald, New York Tribune, and Virginia Pilot via the Library of Congress. Wikipedia, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle via the Library of Congress. Nathan Ward on WSJ.com. And Tom Miller, Daytonian in Manhattan blog. My sources for this week are nycourts.gov, 
chemistryworld.com, casemind.com, npr.org, and of course, the ever-popular Wikipedia. My sources this week are encyclopedia.com, chemistryworld.com by Rochelle Burks, librarything.com, mailfactorregister.com by Mark Gribben, jimfisher.edinburgh.edu. Music.